Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Just a quick note to our listeners. This podcast was recorded in a live session in Estonia. There are some bits that are cut out before and after. Hope you enjoy it. Okay, guys. It's great having you guys here. It's a, it's a bit of a homecoming for the Seed Camp team. A lot of old friends here, people that we've known for a while. Andrus Hawks from the EDF. I remember my first investment I did with, with Andrus. And so it's, it's, it's such a great story to come here and look at companies of ours that are, that are here. We got the Moniz Mafia and TransferWise and, um, obviously Stan and the Skype Mafia and other companies that probably are, should be here. Uh, the Qminder and whatnot. Uh, and it's really exciting to be back and, and to spend more time. And, and actually, I need to do this more often. I, so hopefully, if I can get a, a general invitation from all of you to go spend at least two nights, I would have like permanent bed and breakfasts in Estonia for the next year or two. So hopefully, you can be welcoming to one of our Seed Camp team and we can come here more often because we really love Estonia. Because it's been a while since we've been here and I, you know, it's, it's an act of, of omission on our part. Um, it's probably worthwhile walking through how we are and how we operate today. And then I'll get into some of the VC myths and, and, and some of the topics of today before we bring Sten on. So Seedcamp started in 2007 and some of the history behind it is actually a bit confused. Because it's like ancient history now. 2007, so much has changed. And one of the things that changed substantially is how much money is available, how many investors exist in, in both Eastern Europe and Western Europe. Um, the interest Americans have in coming and investing in companies here, so much has changed. But when Seedcamp started, it was started with a single mission, which was how do you bridge Eastern and Western Europe with the US and how do we create events and bring people together to do that? And that's a large part of what we did early days. We would have these events called mini seed camps and people would, would come and help and, and give a lot of the feedback. And that's how, you know, we met people like Sten and it was a very communal gathering. It was very exciting. Lots of energy would definitely end up in some of the party spaces here uh, late at night. And one of the things I think people misunderstand about who we are today versus then is that back then it was arguable whether we we're an incubator, whether we we're an accelerator. Um, we really never were. Now what we are is, is really a seed fund. Basically what we specialize in today is taking early stage companies before a series A and helping them scale globally. And, and in effect, it's taken us, you know, every three years reinventing ourselves to get to where we are today. And we feel really happy with where we are. And as you might have read, we have, you know, companies, as you know, already transferwise, but companies like Revolut and UiPath and Moniz and WeFox that have been part of our story. And it takes a long time. I mean, for those of you that are founders in the room, you know, it's taken SeedCamp easily 10 years before I can say, wow, this is really working. But, you know, we really noticed that the average number for a company to get to that point is about six years. So just to set the time frame, that's how long it can take. And it's, it's a long-term investment, not just in terms of money, but also of patience and relationships. And so that's, that's who Sid Kemp is today. And one of the fun things that that has given me a privilege to do is to see how investors 
think. So we have about 300 companies today. Those companies span all over the world. And I think we're over easily having created 2,000 jobs across all those companies easily. And it's amazing to look at that from a social impact point of view. But the, the cool thing is that we also have a lot of inbound feedback from the founders about the investors they talk to. So we know from these conversations how founders are perceived. So as I mentioned during sort of the intro, Sten has been a huge member of the Seedcamp family for a long time. Um, I'm going to have you walk through your, your story and you, know, you can share it then. But uh, Seedcamp was started with my colleague Reshma and, and Saul. And Saul and, and Sten had you know previous relationship because of the Skype days. And so maybe what we can do is we start the story there. Tell us about how you um, started working together, how you learned about Seedcamp, and what were your early interactions there? Actually, I was trying to find the Seedcamp t-shirt for today. I, I have a Seedcamp t-shirt from 2007, uh, which was the first Seedcamp. And when I wore it in Estonia, people were asking, so same Nelaga, what's about that? And uh, and basically what happened was that Saul Klein, who was uh, one of the early marketing leads at Skype and, and was working from the London office, and he was a founder of Love Film and some other pretty successful UK startups before, he he was pushing for this idea that, okay, in this sort of after wave of, of Skype, and Skype, if you remember the timeline, uh, started in 2003 and got acquired by eBay in 2005, but like basically for Europe, that was the sort of the unicorn of the decade uh, story. And so riding that wave that we should do something more, we should give back to the startup community, community that that I think the shape of it in London was, was no better than it is in Tallinn today. So the numbers were small, the amount of people who were thinking that their startup founders were really small. And so what Sol basically did was to start getting people together who had some experience of working with large tech companies, which most of, most of them were American at the time, and just trying to get them in the room together. And so to spend the week together, chat about marketing, chat about products, chat about engineering. And so I just happened to be one of the, one of the people that he tapped that, hey, do you want to drop by that week in London? And, and it was a fantastic experience from the ground up. So, so, uh, Seed cap weeks were the first thing, and then when the venture fund started, then I missed the first fund, but I have been investing in fund two, fund three, fund four, and fund three was, I think, the one where I called you and, and said that, okay, I'm starting Teleport, and I want you on it. Um, so it works both ways. It's a, it's a very interesting dynamic where where you can you're not really wearing any specific hat. Like you can be a founder and an investor and a mentor and, and all of those things at different times and help each other out when whenever the format needs you. Mm. And one of the cool things about your background is that not only did you do the time at Skype, but you also worked in government and you, you probably helped spearhead a lot of the innovation that's made Estonia great. I mean, one of the things that I, I find amazing about Estonia, and we, we kind of covered it a little bit, as I said earlier in the workshop, is how much the Estonian founder brand is super strong. Like the, the, the Estonians that are going to fundraise abroad have a hell of a lot more uh, credibility and power than a lot of other countries do because of People that were in Skype, people in Transferize, everyone that's on that wall has paved the way for, for, um, Estonians. But a lot of it also came from very innovative thinking behind the government initiatives. You want to share a little bit about your time there? Well, yeah, I was, uh, uh I was the president of Estonia's, uh, advisor, President Ilves of Estonia, needed a, a sparring partner, as all of you know, he doesn't really need anybody to explain technology to him, but rather to chat to him about it. 
and uh, I had this sort of formal role. Uh, I remember my contract was uh, it was a zero point one of a position, so not the full position, but 10% load position. And as a geek, I totally appreciated my government salary was 256 euros, which is a power of two as a geek. I really appreciated that. Love it. Um, so, but, but, but the substance of that was fantastic because uh, President Ilves is, uh, is a, is a, again, back in, in late 2000s, he was showing up at startup events. He always made a point of sort of dropping by the offices, join people when they were going abroad to sell or to pitch their company, um, and, uh, and uh, sending you an email at 3 a.m. from his iPhone with something like, I think this Israeli Skada thing is real. And, and like uh, you try to imagine like which other head of state in 2000s would think about these topics and know what SCADA is. So, so I think there was this and always has been, uh, since early nineties, this sort of weird combination where, where when you talk to founders in many other countries, there is a very, very, um, sort of this dichotomy or conflict between the private sector and the state where in Estonia you felt that the government is here to make the tech companies' life easier, and the tech companies are creating fame globally that makes the government's life easier, and sort of this wheel starts spinning. So, and this is, I'm not going to go into the details right now, but it's a, it's a huge mess right now, which with, with a slight, <laughs> slight risk of losing that momentum, which uh, fortunately we have enough of the startup momentum going. Mm. So, one of the things that sometimes comes up is preparation or education for founders. There's a lot of hate towards people with MBAs in the startup world for some reason. Um, That's why I got one. Yeah, exactly. So I was going to ask you about that because, you know, people, um, especially developers, can sometimes benefit from having a business education to make that transition. But you were coming from Skype. I mean, you saw things growing from the inside and you saw them exploding, growing, scaling. And then you worked in government. I mean, you covered just about everything. You had an MBA in life. Then you went to GSB to get a, a, a degree in Stanford. Why did you do that? So now recently we have a new CEO at Topia and uh, Sean is a, is an engineer. Um, and Sean um, recently told me that the reason why he got the MBA is he once had a mentor who said that as an engineer, you need to get an MBA so you never have to report into one. <laughs> So my mine wasn't as clearly defined, uh, but basically why I decided to go back to school in a relatively old age, um, I I figured after seven years at Skype, I figured I need to take some time out. Many people in Western Europe, when they take time out, they go to Southeast Asia, lie on the beach and read a book. So I figured I want to do something a little, little more intense. Uh, and because I was a college dropout before, I figured that going to university and having some really concentrated academic time would be a good way to do it. And uh, I had the privilege of picking which school in the world I'll go for, and I only went for one, which is the one that I identified is one of the top schools where entrepreneurs go through, and it's in the middle of Silicon Valley, so it's very linked with industry as well. So it's not just academic, but it's a good mix of practical and academic. And how I viewed the time there was like, you see a lot of things. You, as a founder, and I founded my first company when I was 18, and I didn't know anything at the time, so I made all the mistakes possible. But basically, if for 10, 15 years you've hired people, fired people, raised money, sold to customers, uh, went bankrupt, done all of those things uh, that I had, then you accumulate this sort of box of puzzle pieces. And for me, uh, a year at school was a way how to 
shuffle that box, see which of the pieces that they've seen in real life fall together, where the gaps are, and most importantly, which of the gaps I care about to fill, and which of the gaps I will forever hire other people to do. For example, accounting. Like you can take an advanced accounting class and confirm your knowledge, prior knowledge that forever somebody else will do that for you. Uh, but there were other things that I got super fascinated about, like uh, like um, uh, finance, for example. Uh, corporate finance, I think historically in business schools has been all about uh, will you get the job in on Wall Street later, like Harvard's finance, that's what it means. At Stanford, my finance classes were entrepreneurial finance, unit economics, VCs and angel investing. And when you're sitting there, the people coming through the classroom, like one half of the class is a professor, uh, a tenure professor at Stanford. And I was taking a VC, VC a venture investment class where two years before me, Snapchat was pitched in that class. And Eric Schmidt was teaching like 10, out, I don't know, four out of 10 classes per semester. And like you have this sort of roster of people who come through and you can have like a closed door session and discuss anything. like. I had a really stupid argument with Minot Kosla about really? something that I got completely wrong in the Sun case from the 80s. Well, most people get into arguments with Minot Kosla. So. That's I've noticed later, yeah. <laughs> um, you graduated, and then you went to become an EIR at Andreessen. What were you planning on doing? Whereas, was it for the purposes of understanding how Andreessen worked, or was it you actually had an idea? Tell us about that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fascinating format that I think... It has made a little bit away in, in Europe, but like it's it's not as commonplace. But there is this format uh, called the EIR, Entrepreneur in Residence, which basically I think the the closest thing to think about it is if medical students finish studying and then they go to a hospital and they are residents, so they are like like working on cutting up humans, but they're not doctors yet. And entrepreneur in residence is kind of the same thing uh, in a different field. So so basically. And every VC firm does it differently, but that, and reason is what it means is that uh, they'll give you the, a desk and access to all their meetings. You can see all the pitches by all the startups, and you can sit in partners' meetings uh, discussing those deals and which deals to go into and which not. And Silicon Valley is a very commute-heavy place, so basically having an office on Sand Hill Road means that you don't have to commute from coffee shop to coffee shop, but other people want to come and meet you there because it's beautiful, and all of these things. And so I was very lucky. Um, among the last set of uh, investors at Skype before um, um, Microsoft acquired uh, us uh, was Andreessen Horowitz, which was just started by Ben Horowitz and, and Mark Andreessen. And Ben and Mark were both on the Skype board. And so I was lucky to work with Ben. Uh, he was my board buddy for some of the hiring that I needed to do for Skype in the US. And so uh, when I was telling him, like, hey, I haven't fully figured out what I want to do after school, he said, why don't you hang out here while you while you think about it? And uh, and so I did. And, and I went in. I knew that I don't want to become an investor full time. So maybe later, maybe later in life. But uh, but I still wanted to do something operational. But I had no clue of, uh, of uh, if I want to start another company or if I want to join some company or like, and I was discussing that with Ben and Ben, ben had a, and I think the firm generally has a fantastic attitude, which I think aligns with Seedcamp is that if you join something in portfolio, we're happy. If you start something new and 
we can invest, we're happy. If you join something outside of the portfolio, maybe we can invest later and we're happy. So like, there's no way to lose. Like, <laughs> so, so, and, and I approached it as a similar open mind and really did all of the above. Like I was talking to teams that they saw pitching there. I was talking to people outside. I sometimes locked myself in a meeting room and put away the phone and had four hours with me in the whiteboard to just think about something, which is a luxury that you usually don't have. And, uh, in the end, I, I gradually, tilted towards this topic of global mobility and helping people move across borders and, and sort of making the world more open and borderless and felt that this is where I want to put my next 10 years mm -hmm. and I couldn't find a company to join so I had to start one. So you had to start one. All right. So before we go into the journey, because I want to focus in on the journey that you had building a company, scaling a company. I know that a lot of people have questions about that, but I think that you also have unique insight into one of the best funds in the world and how they think. And there was a, a recent news article about how they're reinventing, you know, the, the venture model as a, basically a merchant bank. So maybe we can dig a little deeper into that. Um, just to get a sense for the audience, I know it's a mix of, of friends and investors and whatnot, but, uh, those of you that have gone out and raised in the United States, raise your hand. Okay. One. All right. Those of you that plan on going out to raise in the United States, a few more. All right. And those that are currently actively fundraising at the moment. Okay. So one of the things that I would love to hear is the distinction in your mind between the, the, the way that West Coast VCs think and maybe just, not necessarily Estonian, but just European investors think. What are the big differences and how do you, how do you plan, how do you recommend for founders to sort of think through that process of pitching for one group and sometimes that narrative is different than pitching to another group because we had a couple of companies come and meet you guys and they went through that journey but maybe you can describe that journey for for the audience yeah i think and and that landscape definitely is changing again like as anything uh, in tech it's it's the pace of change is amazing so already my own experience which is now 5 years old like might not be fully up to speed but one, starting with maybe how not to do it, like when, when I was there, then uh, uh, when you're an Estonian in Silicon Valley, basically every other Estonian finds you and every other Finn finds you. And so you have this constant flow of, of people uh, who, who come and say, like I was shocked how many entrepreneurs from Europe come and say that, okay, I landed on Thursday, so I went to Infinite Loop Drive and I did the Apple selfie and then I went to the, the Facebook headquarters and did the thumb up selfie and okay, I'm ready to fundraise. Can you intro me to the right people? So it, it is a very fast moving, very intense community, very transactional community that you have in San Francisco and Silicon Valley and it's not penetrable, penetrable in, in seconds. Like you really have to have a plan. You really have to have the way how to inject yourself into the network. You really have to sort of start early getting onto the radar of people, finding the right intros. Nobody responds to cold emails. Nobody wants to just, uh, nobody will give you money for just chatting. They will might, might actually meet you, but, but that's a different thing. And, and I think over, over the time I've, I realized that because of the, spread of talent around the world and the spread of available capital around the world, like again, in the last 12 years, there was no seed camp, there is seed camp with, I don't know, a dozen unicorns in the portfolio. When that availability happens, then there is really less and less reason why to go to Silicon Valley as an outsider to raise the seed round. So the earlier the round, the closer to home it should be, I think is the sort of rough rule of thumb. 
I intro transfer wise, I think at the Series B fundraise to some big value investors, and when Andreessen uh, Horowitz invested in Series C, Ben actually started with his blog post announcing the investment, saying that I have to apologize because we like <laughs> <laughs> like at B the only thing why they didn't invest was the location. It was already on a rocket ship. They loved Talat and Crystal, like all of these things, but they were like. Estonia is too far, or London is too far, like going to a board meeting for one company, like imagine it takes two days out of you, you miss five deals in two days in Silicon Valley, right? So so this it's getting more and more local, and I think if you are a Facebook engineer, leave, leave Facebook and then you're starting a new company and you've been in the network for five years, of course you will raise locally there. But going from outside, I think it makes less and less sense and it makes sense to go to Valley once you know that there is something specifically that you're looking for from a specific investor. You know not the fund's name, but the investor and their personal track record with other companies and reasons why you want to work with that person and you get the right interest to that person and then maybe it works. Yeah. And I think that that is... That continues to be the case. I mean, we, we, um, one of the things Seedcamp does is we take our companies on a U.S. trip and we took on the U.S. trip, we took pretty much everyone in our portfolio that you would know as successful. And every single time the reaction in America is, Oh, you're not here yet. Okay. Let us know when you're here yet. And I think that even though we're in 2019, the rationale behind that, and I get it, it's hard to, as you said, attend a board meeting if you're eight, you know, time zones away. So that's one, Probably good valid reason. But I think another one is this, some of the myths that I talked about is sometimes it, it, it takes a while for somebody to fully get, um, how an opportunity can be big, especially when it's coming from a smaller country and that doesn't have access to the big market the U.S. is. From the conversations that you witnessed at Andreessen, and especially funds that are big, like let's take an Andreessen, a Greylock, 500 million funds plus. What's the biggest difference in how you saw the companies that were really, that became big, how they pitched their vision versus how sometimes we're encouraged to pitch a vision here in, in, in Europe to maybe satisfy the needs of a shorter term investor? The craziest pre pitches that you see in the valley are truly crazy, like, like insane which probably wouldn't get the second meeting in Europe because you couldn't display how your customer acquisition cost will start, or how your lifetime value will start exceeding the customer acquisition cost in month 14, which is more of the pragmatic European discussion around that. There were some, um, uh, what's, what's my favorite craziest? Orbit. Hmm. Orbit, uh, those of you who might know, they're, they're inventing, reinventing how compute, computing will look like in a post-processor era, and just to make it more fun, they've invented new names for every single concept in the thing. So the guy is pitching, and you have no idea what he's talking about. And of course they got funding. Uh, of course they got funding. <laughs> so, so just because, again, the team team is insanely smart, and, and people know them what they've done before, and, and so forth. But, but at the same time, there are some solid uh, companies that come with solid traction, and uh, like the Airbnbs and the Lyfts and this sort of companies, like it is still metrics matter and, yeah. and sort of traction matters and customer love matters and just the ambition or maybe the scale or what they're raising for. Or like, I think China has picked up really quickly on that kind of a theme of investing, mm. that you have something that has a proof of traction and then you throw like $3 billion at it. Mm. Or whatnot. Um, but the other thing that I think is a very simple math that very often uh, young founders don't know about, which is the well-hidden secret of the VC funds, I think is again like the 
the you're basically competing on partners' time. And correct me if I'm wrong, but so one partner can sit on anywhere between eight to t eight to twelve board seats. Like imagine you have twelve companies that you're sitting on the board, and you have twenty working days per month. And like startup boards, where you often work once a month, and then you have two calls with the founder, then your calendar is full. Oh, by the way, you should be investing in new companies. So where does that com time come from? So if you have a VC fund who has a billion dollars under management. That me and has ten partners. That means that every founder, uh, every um, uh, partner at the VC fund needs to invest hundred million dollars. And if you can sit on ten boards, that means that basically you have to pick ten companies where you invest ten million dollars. And you cannot afford to do two hundred thousand dollar investments because you have to do how how many two hundred thousand dollar investments to get a hundred million in deployed capital? And your investors, your limited partners, will look at you and it's like, okay, are you deploying my capital or not? Where's the return? And so when you look through that math, then you very quickly understand that it's pointless to go pitching a $300,000 or $700,000 round to a VC who has $5 billion under management. Like it, the math doesn't compute, and and that's where and the later the found uh, later the round is, the more it is about metrics and measurable things and Excel sheets and the less about the visionary story. So that's, I think, how the seed investors and later stage investors start diverging and, and the large funds that you mentioned are all the large ones. Yeah. And this is like a perfect transition question to tell the teleport story because the vision for it, which I remember very vividly the first time you told me. What do you remember? <laughs> well, I mean, basically you were making it possible for people to move anywhere and make all the critical decisions that determine a move successful. And it was like, you know, you, the, the reason why I asked you that question before I wanted to hear you share with the, uh, the, the room, the vision of it is because it, it is so massive in scope, right? You needed to siphon data across so many different things, correlate them. Like for example, how school attendance and proximity to school and living costs and, you know, rental cost, like it was so mad in some ways that it fulfilled both those things. But maybe you tell me from, from your point of view, how did you come up with the idea, the product hypothesis, and how did you pitch it to the Andreessen board? Yeah, the, uh, so the idea was born from personal experience, as usually ideas are. And so it comes back to the Skype years, and there are a few things that happened in Skype. First of all, in any managerial role at Skype, by the time we had 200 people, we had 10 offices. And so in any managerial role, you always had to figure out, okay, do we hire this next person in Tallinn or in Stockholm or, oh, they are in Prague, should we open up an office there or how do we get them to London and can they work remotely and all these location-based questions, which we didn't realize at the time, but in retrospect, we were making them all the time. And secondly, I started moving my own family around. So we've lived in, in, in Tallinn, Singapore, London, and uh, now recently in, in Palo Alto. So... I knew firsthand how unnecessarily painful it is to move yourself, especially if you have kids and need to figure out the schools and vaccinations and all this crap that uh, that comes with uh, documents all over. And, and so I was sort of thinking about that space. And while thinking about it, just talking to people, uh, I started talking to Balaji Srinivasan, who became my co-founder, and he was also a board partner at Andreessen at the same time. Hanging, we were hanging out and sort of had lunch and chatting in, in dealer review meetings. And Balaji is a guy who Chris Dixon, another investor there, has characterized if, if Einstein had had internet, that would be Balaji. So he's just insanely productive. He comes up with eight absurdly world-changing ideas 
per hour, tries to find teams. He has co-founded a company that now tests 5% of prenatal babies in the US for DNA samples. And then he, he has free degrees from Stanford, all from different disciplines. Uh, I feel like I'm not doing enough. Exactly. <laughs> and, 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 and so, so we started chatting with Balaji about that and we realized that Balaji has this mag magnificent skill of sort of generalizing problems. And, and I, I came from this, okay, I, I, there's these things, I think there is something here. We need to solve these things when you think about it. And then we had a Google Doc where we had Balaji and Mark Andreessen and myself and we were chatting about that. And then we, we kind of evolved it to a, a point that, okay, there is something here which is like, how do you make every single, which I later worded at that, that time, we couldn't make it that crisp, but how do you make every single government in the world to compete for every single citizen? Like, if you help people figure out where is the best place for them to live and work, and on the flip side, every government can change, okay, let's raise this tax rate, let's get a, create better schools, let's figure out the healthcare, and when people find the best place to live quicker, they will move faster than ever before, and if you screw up the environment, people will leave faster than ever before. And competition usually is something that raises all boats. So, so it will create a better world. Um, sounds logical enough. And, and then, then we figured out that. Just a, what year was this? Just to set the frame? Uh, 2013, late 13, early 14. When did the e-residency program come out? Uh, around the same time, 14, I think. There were some other conversations happening. <laughs> and, uh, and actually, uh, as a side remark, Estonia has proven to be a significant world leader in all of that, that massive trend. Jobatical, e-residency, teleport, transferwise, like all of the companies betting on the same thing, right? So that the cross-border movement matters. And it is even more necessary. That's the other thing is that those all pre-Trump, pre-walls, pre-right-wing sort of close the borders thing. But in reality, the more complex the world gets, the more you need help with all of these things. Like if you don't know where you can go with your passport this week, the more you need people to help you with that. Actually, it's a good question. I don't know if I'll be able to make it back in this week. Exactly. Okay. I think, I think, I think Tavet flew away somewhere, which was like, oh, really? his hashtag was Brexit in Instagram. Oh, wow. So, okay. so, uh, we're, we're working on this thing. And then, then I called Silver, uh, Silver Keskula, who, who, uh, was the first research engineer at Skype. And Silver has two interesting characteristics. He has deployed machine learning algorithms on 300 million computers in the world, which helps. And uh, secondly, Silver had lived in nine countries uh, at the time. And when we started Teleport, he became full nomad and started living in four or five countries a year. So we had like the, the data skills, the, the, the living the life and all of these components of the team. And um, we had no clue what the first product is or what the business model is, but I felt convinced that we need to build something in this space and we need to buy ourselves time to build this. And, uh, and so, we structured a, a two and a half million dollar round around this. And because of, I was an EIR, that's an interesting dynamic always with EIRs is that if you're an EIR at one fund, it becomes a massive signal if that fund invests in you or not. So if you've spent there for like, I don't know, nine months and you come up with an idea and they don't invest, like why would anybody else? So, so. The way I architected that was that I took a week before my Andreessen Horowitz pitch, uh, which was March 1st, 2014. It was my birthday. I was wearing a tie. And uh, and I, I took that week before, and I went around and pitched heavily a list of angels so that when I walked into the room, I said, that, okay, the run is ongoing. This is what I've closed. Do you want to join or not? So to, just to change the conversation a little bit. And, uh, and they led the round. 
And then, uh, obviously, SeedCamp was the only other fund that I called uh, because I really felt that building something very global, I wanted to have a not a narrow Silicon Valley touch to it. So there was a, a range of uh, angels from Europe and US, and I wanted to have one European fund to sort of balance the US fund. And the other fundraising tip that I learned from Mark was, uh, no, actually, it was Dustin Moskowitz, uh, who's the founder of Asana. Uh, he has an amazing point about this, is that he he was a billionaire already coming out of Facebook, and then he was raising money for Asana, and he he he, uh, he was like, uh, somebody asked him, that, why do you need to raise seed funds when you are a billionaire? And he said, that, have you ever tried hiring Mark Andreessen? So that like getting the right angels on board and getting calling the right people to put like something that is an insignificant amount of money for them gives you a license forever to call them about your business. And so so I very carefully crafted the kind of people that they wanted to have on that list. I think it's fascinating here you talk even though you talk about silver, and I think I, the reason why it's great hearing him tell the story again is because it gives you an idea of what it sounds like to be on the receiving end of a FOMO type pitch, right? Like Clearly, does everybody know what FOMO is? But the fear of missing out, and it's it's clear to me, even hearing your story today, you're like, well, yeah, of course. I mean, of course, I would like the idea makes sense, the the trend makes sense, that the people that you're working with makes sense, the relationship between the two of you makes sense, and and it's just helpful, I guess, to hear it, um, and 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 how that went. So, if we fast forward a little bit on the teleport story, how big did it get staff wise? We were at. 12 people eventually, yeah. Okay. So that journey, I, I want to explore several elements of that journey. One of them is managing product development and and fulfilling product development goals on such a big vision and kind of the pressure you had there and how you set the goals to mapping with fundraising. That's that's one question. And then the next one we'll cover in a second is is driving monetization and sales. But let's cover the first one uh, because it, you basically started on a business that if it didn't have product was a non-starter. So walk us through that product vision, roadmap, fundraising relative to that product and how you really set forth in motion the milestones to deliver. So we had a vision. So we want to have people move freely around the world. So you start unpacking that and you, 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 you can have free smart people in the room and write hundred things on the whiteboard. What are the things that you could fix? Anything from immigration to shipping things to figuring out things. And what we finally ended up doing was that we bucketed it in two buckets. There is the first and sort of the human questions that we, we need to ask in order to for more moves to happen. The first one is that where in the world should I live and work? Like non-trivial, people make them super subjectively, like based on recommendations from friends or what they've read, but they don't think about it. They don't analyze it. They don't have the tools. It's super hard to Google as well, by the way. Try it. You'll probably get teleport, actually. Uh, and then uh, the second question is that now that I know where I should be, how do I get there? And we identified that that's a different bucket of things, which is about move execution. Okay, what does it cost? Like, where should I fly? How much does it, like, where are the schools? Blah, 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 blah. So we decided that between those two, linearly, the first one happens first. Then we realized that there are companies that are doing number two, 
like helping people ship things, for example, but there's nobody dealing with number one. And we also realize that it's a pure software problem. So if we can figure out solving the search problem first, it's a pure software problem. We have this search and data skills on team. We don't have dependency on any physical comp comp thing going wrong. And it's also like an aspirational thing. So the bucket number two addresses moves that are actually happening. Bucket number one has to be orders of magnitude larger because you get all the dreamers as well. So we decided to tackle problem number one first. And we, we experimented that first we were building a very local prototype. So we built the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area life search. Given where, where your office sees, where should you live? What is the cost and commute optimal place to live? And that was a point how to reduce the problem to a scope that we can actually test out can we build it. So 7 million people, uh, probably around 100 zip codes, which was our unit of management. So we gathered data about rent data and commute data about 100 zip codes, 100 by 100, 10,000. That's pretty simple to cover with data. So actually we had, with our first prototype, I remember we were demoing it somewhere and Amazon sent some AWS guy saying that he can get this a good deal on the data centers and the entire thing was in browser's memory. <laughs> so, but it looked very fancy, colorful and all. And, and so we're building, building that and so then we expanded to building a global search engine, which meant that we had to build the data pipeline. And now we cover like 800 dimensions of cost and quality of light data. And so automated that. That was another thing with product development. We, we decided early on it has to be premature automation was basically the principle that we had. That in order to keep the team small, we automate everything and anything that we can way ahead of time. So we had like automated code deployment, automated data pipelines, anything. So, so we wouldn't have to have humans to keep the thing running and which has proven very well. Now, like two years after we got to quiet, we haven't really touched the code base. The data machine keeps humming and people keep using it. Like 1.2 million users a year are still searching and we don't have to spend time there if we don't want to. Anyway, I'm digressing. Uh, so, so the product stuff. And then once we were sitting all the, on all that data set, then we decided to do something that most people don't recommend startups to do. We started doing a lot of isolated experiments with what the other products could be on that data set. So instead of the core search of where you should live and work, we built an app that was very popular, uh, called Teleport Flock, which is like, you tell us where your people are. Like you want to organize a sales meeting between eight salespeople who are all around the world and you want to get them in one place, how do you do that? We talk to people, it comes out that it's a, one office admin called it, it's a 27 browser tab problem because where are the flights? How much do they cost? What are the hotels? What can, oh, let's back to square one. And so we built, and it's still live, you should check it out. Like you enter these sort of locations of eight people and you press a button and in less than a second we'll tell you what is the cost and commute optimal place in the world to, to, to meet and we'll show you the Airbnbs with eight bedrooms to go with it. So exact budget in a second. But that was an example that we ended, we ended up building a, a multitude of apps and we have, many people were giving us feedback that that's crazy, you, you need to focus on all of these things. And we realized that so many startups are doing experiments by sending an email with a fake button that okay and see count how many people would click there and then you decide if to build it or not because of the automation and the back end and the talent that we had on the team to build these things very often for us building this two-page web app that did something useful was took like less time than sort of building that email test right maybe in three days we would have it live and that's something that they still love about building for consumers is that you can have an idea in the morning you can build something during the day you can a b test and in the morning you decide based on data if you pursue it or not and so we did a lot of that and that's where you're heading for the next question right so one of the things that came up in the in the workshop was this idea of 
uh, direct sales versus enterprise sales. And, you know, you talked about how this was a problem for companies, right? So some of the breakout products that you had were for company organizers, for people who are trying to recruit people, they want to be able to sell a package. Look, this is how much you're going to earn. This is how much it's going to cost you to live here. These are the right schools. So you can convince them to leave one job and go to the next, right? On the flip side, there's people as individuals who are making these decisions all the time and they're a consumer, right? And we call that B2C versus B2B2C or B2B. How did you decide which one to focus on when? And then we'll get into sort of the dynamics of how to scale that. Yeah, so so the thing with all these experiments where they're all still consumer-facing, and and the big issue with consumer-facing experiments that we found was that if we had started charging the consumers, we felt that we would go against our mission. We were on a mission to have as many people as possible to move to the best place in the li to live and work, or not move, but do it consciously, like to have people that sort of information and liberty to make that decision. That meant that we were discussing that, okay, if we made the product paid, that will limit the amount of people who can make that. Imagine somebody in the middle of Africa who is the most talented mathematician you ever know. If you put the paywall up, they will never know that they, there is a best place with an amazing job for them or they could go to Cambridge or like, like, like why would we limit that funnel? Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.